This is Author Talk. I'm Ray Hoffman. We're here in the Adorama Live Theater. And Lee Gallagher is one of the most accomplished business journalists of her generation. She's an assistant managing editor at Fortune. Her latest book is The Airbnb Story, How Three Ordinary Guys Disrupted an Industry, Made Billions, and Created Plenty of Controversy. <laughs> Welcome to Author Talk and CEO Radio, Lee Gallagher. Thank you so much, Ray. Thanks for having me here. And I want to begin with something that co-founder and CEO Brian Chesky said to you. If we lived another thousand lives, we would be hard to imagine everything clicking the way it did. Ever write about a more unlikely success? No, and I don't think in a generation has there been as unlikely a success as Airbnb. It is stunning to me. I sort of knew the bones of the story before I went and researched for the book, but the, the fact that this even got off the ground, let alone became what it is today, I mean, everyone thought this was a terrible idea. Uh, these three founders couldn't get anyone to take their calls, couldn't get anyone to give them money. Uh, one investor they met with literally got up halfway during the meeting and just walked out. He left his smoothie on the table. They thought he went to pay his parking meter. He just never came back. I mean, people thought this was just completely uh, a terrible idea. Wrong on every level. Wrong on every level. People will never stay in strangers' homes. Someone's going to murder someone in one of these houses and you're going to have blood on your hands. What is wrong with people? Why do they actually do this? I mean, it was just, you know, a lot of this was, you know, older people, you know, set in their ways. I mean, me included. Uh, I talked to a hotel executive who at the, it was in his 40s at the time, and he said, he, that, he said what, what about the sheets? What about cleaning? Why would anyone do this? And he wasn't thinking as a millennial who wants a cheap place to stay, likes adventures, is a little bit anti-corporate, sick of conventional hospitality. You know, all this stuff was lost on all the people who were uh, there at the beginning and ha had the chance to make a lot of money and passed. You know, there's a large part of this story that fits with the many other business enterprises that started out of economic crisis. I mean, so many businesses started in 1933, for example. But in this case, I don't get the sense that economics is even a quarter of the story, maybe only a fifth or a sixth or something, a new company coming out of the Great Recession serving this new need, but there's something more than economics. There was something more. I think initially that played a big role because it, it was, it, when it first got started, it was only sharing a room or a space in the place where, while you were there. So it was much cheaper. And it was the Great Recession. So I think that was an appeal, but it's way bigger than that, as you say. I mean, it really struck a chord. Um, you know, the hospitality industry had gotten so overly commercial and overly consistent. I mean, some might say commoditized. Ernie Sorensen, the CEO of Marriott, was on stage last year, and he said, you know, 20 years ago, what the consumer wanted was if they woke up in Cairo, they still wanted to feel like they were waking up in Cleveland. You know, that's what they wanted. And so we gave that to them. But now if they wake up in Cairo, they want to feel like they're waking up in Cairo. And so Airbnb came along and offered this authentic, unique, artisanal, everyone is different. Now that can be good and bad, but it was, it was you know, it, it played into this just, you know, authentic and um, adventurous as well. Yeah. Kind of thing. It was a movement. Yeah, it's funny that Arnie Sorensen would mention Cairo because I know the Marriott people are so proud of the fact that during the, the riots that preceded the Arab Spring, they defended that hotel <laughs> and made everybody inside feel as if they were in <laughs> Cleveland. <laughs> That's funny. Let's go back now to Rhode Island, the Rhode Island School of Design. In uh, 2004, we've got a couple of guys who are involved in a design project for Conair, mm -hmm. the maker of hair dryers, and their ideas were like totally out of the box. 
Yeah. So this was Brian Chesky, now the CEO, and Joe Gebbia, the co-founder and chief product officer. And the two of them were kindred spirits all throughout RISD. They resuscitated the sports leagues together. They got up to all kinds of crazy antics. And, but this was the first time they actually worked on a design project for school together. And it was for the, design, the company Con Air, which makes hair dryers. Uh, and every, everyone else in the group, they were pairs, paired in two, and everyone else came up with conventional ideas like a better hair dryer, you know, new appliances, ways to tweak things. And these two came up with ideas, and when they presented them, it was just completely out of the box. Like they came up with a whole new line of products, a soap, a shirt made out of soap that washed off. I mean, that <laughs> is exactly that. the way these two thought then and still think now. And so what that told them was that when the two of them get together, their ideas are bigger than everyone else's. And Joe Gebbia, in fact, played probably the most important role of anyone in this book in getting this off the ground because he said to Brian Chesky as they were leaving, he said, we're going to start a company one day and they're going to write a book about this. He says he said that. And he constantly was pestering Brian to join him in San Francisco and start a company together. And someone had told him before he went to RISD, the most important thing you have to look for when you're at RISD is someone you want to work, work for. So he had that, his antenna up the whole time, and he, he knew it was Brian, and he really had to sell Brian on doing it, and ultimately he was successful. And that takes us to San Francisco and the stuff of legend. <laughs> Chesky comes up from L.A. and moves in. Yes. Moves in, uh, was told the rent was a thousand, but it was really eleven hundred, and he only had a thousand dollars. And Joe also could, had a problem making the rent because they had one empty room still. Their other roommate couldn't start for another month, so they had to carry his weight as well. And they needed to save this apartment because they needed, you know, they would have lost it. And so. Uh, Joe actually said, why don't we, um, you know, I have three air mattresses in my closet. Why don't, there's a design conference coming to town. So they, all these people were coming to town just like them, designers, industrial designers. And they said, why don't we rent out space in our apartment and we'll give them breakfast. We'll make it a whole thing. We'll make it an experience, which is important because that's one way that it's very different than other things. And uh, they thought they would get kind of hippie backpackers and they got people who were just like them and kind of all over the map. They got a father of five. They got a woman in her 30s from Boston. They had a young design grad student from Arizona. Uh, and so, and it, and it really worked. And that's what led them to think, huh, maybe this, maybe there's something here. Even though I think it did down deep, they knew this is pretty weird still. Well, they did think it was weird. And they actually thought, they actually thought that this would just be some quirky thing to pay the rent while they put their heads together and thought of a really big idea. They thought it was going to be something else that they were really going to change the world with. And they even, they spent a month researching, uh, they thought, let's do a website for roommates. Everybody needs roommates. Uh, let's do that. And then they spent a month on it, and then they just Googled roommates.com, and there was already something there. <laughs> so, but this is exactly what happens in, in the startup world. Yeah, and I love the story. Chesky goes home to upstate New York, uh, and, and he tells his mother, I'm an entrepreneur, and she says, no, you're unemployed. <laughs> And he says, no, I'm an entrepreneur. And she went back again and said, no, you're unemployed. <laughs> that was a whole thread. I mean, he was very, his parents were social workers. They told him, you know, he really needs to get a job with health, health insurance. They were really, um, you know, he really wanted to be the straight and narrow. Uh, he was trying to do that. But at the same time, he had such a creative kind of pull that uh, he ended up breaking and taking a big risk. They were not, it was hard for them to see their son take this crazy leap, uh, as it would be for any parent. And they didn't have, you know, for a while they were living on the dry cereal without even milk. They couldn't afford milk. And, you know, it was, they lost weight. I mean, it was hard. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the entrepreneurial story. Yeah. And one of the lessons they learned was to keep launching the product over and over again. 
Yes, this was a great, this is actually great. Um, they're kind of, you have to be a little bit of a hustler when you're an entrepreneur, and they definitely had hustle characteristics. And one of them was that um, they launched the business the first time after that San Francisco weekend, they said, all right, let's do this. And they launched at South by Southwest. And they got two paying customers, one of whom was Brian Chesky. So they really got no traction. <laughs> and meanwhile, their third co-founder, Nathan Blacharzik, was very dubious and just very practical. He came back from that experience saying, like, I don't know, guys. Like, you know, I'm not fully on board. And then they said, no, 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 let's launch again. Let's just launch again. Uh, there was the Democratic National Convention coming to Denver that year. And so they said, you know, forget about it. We'll just get another l round of press. We'll do another launch. And then they even launched a third time. So they just kept launching. And Brian Chesky advises that to other entrepreneurs. If no one notices, just do it again. And they pitched their story on every little blog they could find, especially around the Democratic Convention in 08. They did. They were even before, even in their very early days, they were very press savvy. And they knew that the, the housing, the shortage of hotel rooms at, at the DNC was a very big story because uh, Barack Obama had just been named the nominee. And so that instantly sent the attendance of people who wanted to go to Denver through the roof. So they had to move the speech, his speech to a different stadium. Uh, the hotels were all sold out and they played this. They, uh, but they knew that they weren't going to get CBS to talk to these three kids who no one knew about. So they first went to the little local blogs that were covering things. And they knew that the regional papers looked at the little blogs, and then the national papers looked at the regional papers. And then, then all of a sudden, they were on CNN from their living room in San Francisco doing a Skype interview. And so, and that, that really helped. I mean, they, they ended up getting hundreds of listings and, you know, lots of bookings. But then after the convention, it went flatline again because, you know, there isn't a convention every day. So they were back in San Francisco and that's when they really hit kind of rock bottom. But they finally made the, made the churn when they got that important business launch pad to look at them, the Y, y Combinator. Y Combinator, yes, exactly. Y Combinator is a very prestigious accelerator incubator in San Francisco. It's where a lot of these startups are birthed. And what you get is, is coaching and mentorship from Paul Graham and the other uh, co-founders and partners there. It's very, very valuable. But they sort of saw that as a, a, something that companies that were not as um, far along as they were. They, they said, somebody said, one of their advisors, Michael Seibel, said, you guys should apply to Y Combinator. And they took umbrage at that. They said, but we launched. We were written up on TechCrunch. That's not for us. And he looked at them and he said, you guys are dying. You have to do Y Combinator. And they knew they knew they should, but the applications were due that night, so they called up Nate, who had moved back to Boston to be with his girlfriend, who's now his wife, and woke him up. He barely remembered um, agreeing, and they, they got in, and that really was what turned it around. And that led to a $585,000 investment from Sequoia Capital, which is worth now? $4 billion or so. I think mm -hmm. their total stake, you know, with, with a couple of adjustments along the way, yeah. And you make the point that um, one of the big reasons why Airbnb finally took off it was something that hampered it in the first place. These guys were designers. But one of the reasons why Airbnb took off was the fact that these guys were designers. Yeah, it's so funny. And one of the reasons that they couldn't get any investors to take them seriously was because everyone was looking for the next Google or the next Facebook. So they were looking for a coder from Harvard or they were looking for two PhDs from Stanford. People, you know, th there's this mentality, you just want to repeat the last big success, even if you say you want something new. And so they had a hard time there. But the design is absolutely uh, critical to why the site 
took off and to why it's so different from all the other sites that existed before Airbnb, like HomeAway and VRBO. So, I mean, the design is everything from the look of the site and how they really made the photographs very appealing and a big part of everything. And they created the review system so that there was a natural system of checks and balances, which usually works. Um, and, uh, you know, everything flowed from there. But design is at the center. And by 2010, certainly the company's really taking off. And Brian Chesky has to learn how to be CEO on the fly. Yes, yes. They had some very big learning lessons. I mean, the first big challenge was simply getting the product right and proving that they had something that people wanted. And once they did that, evidenced by the check from Sequoia, then they had to just kind of start running a company and building the company that was going to make that product. And they had a lot of early stumbling blocks. I mean, the biggest is probably uh, in 2011, after they'd gotten their biggest investment to date from Andreessen Partners leading a, a venture round, they had an incident in San Francisco where a host rented out her apartment and it was just ransacked to an incredibly just horrific degree. And, um, and it went viral, and uh, the response was not great. You know, everyone said to Brian Chesky was getting lots of different advice, like, don't say anything, don't take ownership. Um, you know, and he put out a statement that was very defensive and not, was not taking ownership. And then it went, he got even worse. It actually reminded me of the United crisis. Very exactly. similar uh, parallels there. And then he, he had a moment of kind of just soul-searching, as he describes it, and um, he just sort of spent some time, went deep into himself and said, I have to just take ownership for this. And then wrote a second letter, posted that. And, and that did a lot to sort of quell the, you know, the, the, the controversy out there. And then they instituted all these policies and rules and a whole you know, safety division. And, and a lot changed from there. It was a big learning lesson. Yeah, I find it interesting that uh, he turns to specific leaders for specific advice in different areas. He doesn't go for like a general package of CEO advice. He goes to Johnny Ive at, at Apple for design advice, and he goes to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and Bob Iger mm -hmm. and Warren Buffett. Yeah, a, a really eclectic group. I mean, some are obvious if you're a tech in the tech world, a lot of the tech names, and he had access to all these A-listers because he had such high-profile investors. But he also went to other people, like you mentioned, Iger and um, George Ovitz and Mike Ovitz and um, uh, George Tenet from the former CIA director, just to sort of, he's obsessively curious, and he, he says he's shameless. He would just stalk these people. Uh, I mean, at the time, the company was big enough. It was intriguing to those people to meet with him as well. But um, he really, you know, and, and a lot of people have, a lot of CEOs might have that same kind of access. And I asked someone who knows him well, I said, you know, everybody can, can pick up the phone. Everybody in that kind of position, you know, he's kind of in a, you know, gilded place right now. So, of course, it, Mark Zuckerberg's going to take his call. And this person said, you know, not everybody makes use of that, though. Not everybody seeks that advice and is so relentless about trying to learn. Now, we haven't talked at all about Nate Blisarchik. And without him and his various technological innovations, this thing doesn't get off the ground. That's very true. I mean, without Joe Gebbia from the beginning, uh, without Nate's kind of clever, some would say a little bit devious growth hacks, as they're called, uh, when they were just starting off, they, they, had to, they had to, once they got the check from Sequoia, they had to then really grow 
the business. They had to still get it off the ground. And uh, one way they did that was um, these clever kind of backdoor hacks into Craigslist. And Nate Blacharczyk is a, a, by all accounts, just a genius coder. Um, I mean, Brian Chesky said at one point, having Nate with them was like having three engineers, even though it was just the three of them. So um, he was able to create this backdoor into Craigslist that allowed Airbnb's users to click a button and rebroadcast their listing on Craigslist, which had millions of eyeballs, whereas Airbnb at that time, no one knew about it. It, it was, you know, and, and it's, it's probably true that without that, we might not be sitting here today talking about it. I mean, that getting the company off the ground and finding those kind of, they were basically free ways to grow uh, were absolutely critical. And then they also hired um, some people who would poach people from Craigslist and say, hey, I've heard about this great site over on Airbnb. And, you know, that's, that's uncouth. That's not, you're not supposed to do that. They say that it was consultants that they hired and it didn't really drive the business and they fired them. But um, they were definitely up to, you know, they were, they were trying to do everything they could. You know, and by this point, if the history of successful startups is any indication, these three guys should have dissolved in acrimony by, well, years ago they should have. Yeah, that's, that's the way it is with hot growth companies that normally. That is so true. And, you know, I, I asked around, I mean, I don't know this definitively, but everyone I asked, no one could name another company with three co-founders that had stayed together in, in such strong leadership positions of the company for so long without that, you know, a breakup. You know, we've seen so many where there's a sexual harassment scandal or something that drives everyone apart. And that's not the case here. And a lot of the investors, one big reason why they invested and why they continue to invest at this crazy high valuation, if you ask them, one of the things they say at the top three things is the founding trio, the three of them themselves. So, you know, the team is really important, as, as important as the idea and the business. And you mentioned the personality test that uh, was yeah. taken, and it showed the, the various circles and dots and so forth, and they lined up for each person like a perfect isosceles triangle. Yeah, they're very complementary. They're very different, and they, they, they did. They took this personality test, and according to them, the, the test giver came back and said, I've never seen this before. You all are perfectly equidistant. So, I mean, look, it's, it also hasn't been all roses. I mean, you know, one of them said to me, it's like a, it's like a marriage, you know, it's, it's just there's, you know, there's trouble, there's, there's conflict as well. But, you know, definitely the three of them are, are still steering this rocket ship that they built. And it's still the three of them against yeah, the world. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's founder-controlled, this company. So they control everything. They're going to determine when they go public. They determine, you know, what, what they do, what businesses they go into, how they spend the money. I mean, it is... It is um, very, very much up to them. And speaking of being against the world, there's the matter of New York City and seven yes. years of litigation, yeah. San Francisco, the state of California, a yeah. few other places overseas. Let's start with New York, though, because yeah. uh, that, that has been the, uh, I guess, the most vexing problem for Airbnb. Yeah, it's been really difficult here for them. And, you know, they started here. This is where their first group of users really kind of engaged with the company. And um, it's illegal. And it was illegal then. And it was, you know, and it's illegal now. And yet they came in and whether it was naivete or, you know, we'll just, you know, no one will care about us or some combination of the two, um, you know, the bigger they got, the more that just really angered um, the regulators and the hotel lobby, the hotel unions. You have a lot of forces here in New York. It's really the center of the hotel industry. And so um, that there's been a tremendous amount of pushback, and it's gotten 
stronger the bigger Airbnb gets. And so there was this law passed last fall that um, really doubled down on the existing law in the books that short-term rentals are illegal, but now you can't even advertise your listing. Uh, So we'll see. I mean, the, the company has come to a settlement in San Francisco just this week. So I think that was a very big deal. And it's, you know, at the same time, there's a bill that's been introduced in the New York State Assembly by Assemblymember Joe Lentall that is kind of pro-Airbnb. And that's the first sign that that has happened here in New York. That's the first sign of hope. Uh, will it go anywhere? It, you know, it's a long way to get that down the road and actually passed. But Airbnb has changed its tune a little bit in terms of working with regulators. They are much more cooperative now than they were uh, even two years ago. Yeah, you know, in terms of taking housing units off the market, which is one of the issues, uh, there are, what, 44,000 listings in New York mm-hmm. for Airbnb, uh, which is only like one and a half percent of the market. Yeah, there's around, you know, three million housing units. And it's housing is so complicated and so fraught and so emotional. I mean, there's many things that go into why there isn't enough affordable housing in New York City. Uh, the cost of land, construction costs, rent control policies. I mean, there's many things. Definitely an Airbnb unit that is used full-time for Airbnb, that's an illegal hotel, and that's an apartment that someone can't rent long-term. So it's not just necessarily the affordable housing argument. It's, it's all housing. It's, it does take units off the market when people don't use it the way that the world wants them to use it. And, and lots of people, especially in the beginning, jumped in to kind of game the system. And they've gotten rid of most of those gamers, right? The less than scrupulous uh, apartment uh, group owners. Yeah, they say they've kicked off 4,200 listings over the, over the years. Um, it's very hard to tell, you know, and they say that 95% or 96% of the homes in New York, the hosts in New York have only one listing. But with that 5%, you know, that could be, there could be just one person that has 20 apartments. So that, that number is not, you know, that 95% makes things sound great, but there still could be some bad actor activity and, you know, and with that 95%. So it's, it's complicated. They do say that they don't want that. They've taken a much stronger stance about saying they don't want it and kicking people off. But, you know, people say that there are still people out there that have multi-unit apartments, but they hide now. They have different names for each one. Nobody wants to be seen as a multi-unit operator either. So, You know, it's fascinating to me to uh, see this tiny three-person startup, which really kind of congealed around the 2008 Democratic Convention, now employing in high positions all these various power players from the Democratic Party and or labor union establishments. Yes, it's true. They have uh, Chris Lehane, who worked in the Clinton administration. He's their head of policy. They have a lot of people who come out of the Obama White House. Um, There was a saying that it was called White House West last year, a couple years ago. Uh, and yeah, they they hired um, Andy Stern, um, the former yes, yeah, U- yeah, 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 and uh, as a consultant, I believe. Um, so and Eric Holder came in to sort of do a, a investigation over their diversity issues. So they they definitely have the money and the connections. I mean, they sort of brought in all these people on their side, and it makes it makes for a very powerful conversation when they're going against these regulators or the hospitality industry or the unions. You know, it's 2017 now, and the company is still in hyper-growth mode all these years later, which, first of all, is amazing. And this sharing lifestyle is making architects and builders and planners start thinking about the Airbnb phenomenon in the way they design things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they, they are trying to partner with landlords and builders and developers to 
build par- apartments made for sharing. So the layout would be conducive to having someone in your home when you're there. So maybe there's two bathrooms on either side of the living room or a little wing or, so, you know, so that they're more malleable and more able to, to do that. So, yeah, they think, you know, they think that's the future. I mean, we haven't totally seen a building like that yet, but, you know, they have lots of big ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole thing. I, I go on Airbnb.com now, and there's a section that goes hand in glove with the whole millennial experience thing. Mm-hmm. This, this um, what is it called? It's Exper- called experiences oh. or Airbnb trips, but yeah. what they're selling is experiences, a whole menu of yeah. customized experiences. Gin testing, pinata yes. making, surfing, wallpaper making, yeah. and they're all done by Airbnb hosts. Uh, yes. Right? Well, you don't have to be a host to host an experience. Um, some of them are. Many of them are. But they, they consider them. They're hosting in a different way. They're hosting you on a, an excursion. So, um, you know, this is a big they spent two years and a considerable amount of money incubating this project. And it was launched with great fanfare last November It's a very big priority for the company right now. Brian Chesky just went on an around the world tour sort of selling it. And, um, you know, when you look at the app, it's now you used to see just homes and now you see homes up here, but you see all these experiences. And, you know, I wonder if, if, you know, people know Airbnb for a place to stay and that's what they're going to the app for. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't necessarily I'd rather see I want to see homes when I go there, but I'm not a millennial. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, near the end of the book, you've got a quote from uh, an Airbnb veteran who says, uh, we do feel that the old old Mm -hmm. Airbnb was much more fun and personable. Yeah. You know, I brought this up with the founders because this is inevitable. Whenever something gets big, you're always going to have the early users just roll their eyes and say, oh, you're too big. You've gone corporate. You've sold out. I mean, a lot of people joined on board with this company, with hosting or using it as a guest, when it, they felt like they were part of this sort of progressive counterculture movement. You know, nobody was doing it. They had to explain to their friends and family what they were doing. And there was a certain amount of pride in that. And now it's a $31 billion juggernaut. And there's so many other companies that are trying to do it. And now it's sort of, I mean, one person said, you know, it used to be like progressive liberals and now it's Republicans. I mean, this is people get really mm-hmm. um, they take it very seriously. But that's one thing that the company has to deal with because they have to keep those early users happy and they have to keep, you know, the baby boomers who are now joining and retirees and all these other uh, in people, demographics um, have to keep them happy, too. And Brian Chesky has to keep thinking of the thing after the thing after. That's what he says a lot. He always describes thing as, you know, we're we're the thing after travel, or this is the thing after, you know, mobile, or something like that. It's an expression he often uses. And so the plan is to create the world's first community super brand, right? Yeah, that's what they want, the world's first community super brand. They're obsessed with their brand, and, um, you know, it's, it, the brand has been a, been a big part of their success. And he's yeah. preparing, and they're all preparing, I guess, to make this company as big as Amazon or Google? Yes, that is what they look at. That is why they got into this new line of business of experiences, and soon it'll be services and maybe ground transportation and flights. They looked at all the tech companies from the 90s and saw that the only ones that are still around are the ones that diversified. And so they're looking at Amazon. They want to be you know, Amazon and Apple and Microsoft. They want to be that big. That's their aspiration. And there's no reason why they can't do it, right? We'll see. The bottom line is strong. They make a lot of money. They're, they're profitable compared to their counterpart in the sharing economy, Uber. I mean, there's a, there's, the business model is very, very strong. So we'll see. <laughs> well, Lee Gallagher, I don't know how that you weren't uh, 
you went snatched up by CNBC as an anchor <laughs> or one of the networks. But as somebody who worked for Business Week for 21 years, I'm happy to have someone like you still on the print side. Oh, thank you, Ray. I'm, I'm enjoying it, too. So thank you for having me. And this is a wonderful book. It really does tell the Airbnb story, which is one of the great business stories of our time. Don't forget to join me on CEO Radio four times a day on WCBS 880 and cbsnewyork.com slash CEO Radio. And we'll continue with Author Talk down the road.